0: Genesis chapter six. let me let me give you a little bit of my thinking before we read the passage that we're going to going to look at this morning and uh, before we give it to the Lord in prayer. I had uh, initially and in thought anticipated that I would do all of chapter six, uh, but the more I read and the more uh, I thought about it, the more convinced I was that maybe six, one through eight is where we need to uh, to be this morning, uh, in part because 6, 1 through 8 seems to be the tail end of the unit that begins in 5, 1. So, uh, again, bear with me here for a second. Let me give you a little nerdy information, but information that I think is relevant and helpful to us to read Scripture well. If you look at Genesis 5, verse 1, you see how that verse begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then if you skip down to Genesis 6 verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. There's… in in Genesis there are places or there are divisions in the book that are sort of these book This is the book of Adam, this is the book of Noah, this is the book of Abraham, and that's one of the ways that the that the story of Genesis is told. It's told with these chronological periods sort of tied together. And so because you've got one period being introduced in Genesis chapter five and the next one being introduced in Genesis six nine, I'm gonna take six one through eight and we're gonna we're gonna take those eight verses and read them as the, what, addendum, the conclusion to the genealogy that we read and, and looked at last week. All right, this will make more sense here in a few minutes, all right? Uh, for next week, if I can just put a, little, uh, put a little plug in, what I would encourage you to do for next week is to read ahead in, uh, in the Genesis story. I would pick up at 6-9, and I would try to read at least through 917, right? You've got a week to do that, so that's not too much, right? Pace yourselves. Actually, you don't even need to pace yourselves, right? You're voracious readers. You'll, you'll do this in one sitting. Uh, but we'll probably next week look at uh, the flood account uh, in its totality, in sort of a a broad or a big picture sort of way, rather than trying to to drill in and and look at every single detail. So I I think, unless something changes, that's what we're going to be doing for next week, all right? Having said all that, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me as I read. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive or will not abide with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward... When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we turn to your word and we read a sobering passage, that you would give us uh, a soberness in our spirit, that we would be reminded again of the realities of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that we would become more convinced that the only way that sin and judgment can be effectively dealt with is through the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time that we have now. Help us to honor you by this time and by our meditating on your word, and it's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. I'm going to try to move through these eight verses with, uh, with three general thoughts. Uh, one is looking at the issue of sin that's depicted here in 6, 1 through 8. Uh, From sin, looking at the judgment that God decrees in response to that sin, and then the very last thing is taking note of God's grace that is extended in that very last statement in verse 8. So sin, judgment, and grace. Let me say up front, if, uh, if you have read this passage before, and if you've read other people or heard other people talking about this passage before, you know that this is not an easy passage to make sense out of, particularly verses 1 through 4, all right? So let me just go ahead and, and throw in, not in any way to give you an answer, this, will, this may actually frustrate you more because I'm not going to satisfy your curiosity. But let me just show you what some of the difficulties are with the first four verses, and then let me try to take a step back and say, now, however we, we wrestle with the information that we have here, it seems like we could all at least agree on this, what, what the takeaway would be, all right? One of the difficulties that you have in chapter 6 is trying to make sense out of who the sons of God are that take these daughters of men to marry. All right, there are two or three interpretations that are, or views that are typically given of this. One is to say the sons of God are angels. And the reason that people say that is because every time this phrase, sons of God, b'nei Elohim in the Hebrew, every time that exact phrase is found, it's always in reference to angels, to angelic beings. And so for that phrasing to show up here in chapter 6, some people take that to be an indication that these are angelic beings who are intermarrying with human women, and that this is one of the things that is leading to the increasing sin and depravity in the world. Other people say, well, no, the sons of God here are a reference to the godly line that comes through Seth. And they're intermarrying with the ungodly line that comes through Cain. So you get to the end of chapter 5 and you've been reading about men like Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech who is looking for relief from the curse. And then you go into chapter 6 and this godly line that that is being fruitful and multiplying is becoming contaminated as the godly line begins to mix with the ungodly line. And that creates a certain threat. Uh, for humanity. Some people think that what's being discussed here, the sons of God, is a way to, uh, to talk about uh, rulers or kingly figures that are basically coming and with their power and authority are more or less, you know, creating these, uh, these kingdoms for themselves, ultimately building up a kingdom in their own making or own liking, okay? That's one difficulty, Right? Do you see I have not given you an answer as to what the, what the interpretation is? That's one difficulty. Another difficulty is what God means or what we are to understand God means when he says that my spirit will not strive or will not abide with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. Is God basically saying that because of the sin and the increasing wickedness, I'm going to limit the lifespan that men are enjoying right now, that humanity is enjoying. So whereas before we saw in chapter 5 people living for hundreds and hundreds of years, now because of the increasing sin and wickedness, God says, well, I'm not going to continue to give them long life if the way that they use their long life is to multiply sin. So we're going to go from hundreds of years to 120, maybe, It could also be that 120 is the number of time that God sets before judgment comes in the form of the flood. All right, enough is enough. I'm not going to continue to prop this up by my spirit that gives life 120 years, and when 120 years is up, judgment is going to fall, and we're going to rectify this whole situation. There are a number of of different things that you could say about some of these hazy or ambiguous statements. Let me tell you, regardless of how you interpret some of these unique statements, let me tell you at least in, in, in in my mind where we can all land, regardless of who we identify the sons of God as or regardless of what the 120 years refer to. At the end of the day, I think what we're supposed to understand here is that we have... As we'll see, particularly in verses 5 and following, that there is a pushing of boundaries that's taking place here. One of the things that seems to be a pattern with humanity, and by the way, this is not unique to Genesis, this is a pattern of humanity even today is that in three pivotal moments, both in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, here in Genesis chapter 6, and then with the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, one of the unique things that that we pick up on or notice is that in each one of those major cataclysmic events, there seems to be a common thread that runs through all of that, which is man and woman grasping for rights privileges, recognition, authority that only belongs to God. In other words, they, they want to make more of themselves than what God has made of them. And so, if that means through semi-divine creatures, well, we can become godlike that way. If that means that we are going to take what what appears to be the best and the brightest and put them together to make this superhuman race, who cares about mixing godly and ungodly? We're gonna do that. But that there is an overreaching that is starting to filter into all of humanity. And because of that, God is not content, God will not allow anyone to attack or to try to take from His glory to appropriate that for, them, for themselves. He's always going to move at some point, at some time, in some way to judge and to bring that to an end. With that statement, you have then the further explanation that from God's perspective, Whatever we are to make of the description that we have in 6, 1 through 4, we know very clearly God's pronouncement on this situation. So, go back to verse 5 and read there, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually." Great wickedness, great evil, and this is 24-7. By the way, one of the the things that's important for us to recognize is is that in this description, oftentimes we we sort of uh, what, we sort of picture this, uh, this Lord of the Flies type of existence, right, or uh, what's the Lord of the Flies uh, Thunderdome or something like that, right, it's just complete anarchy. I'm sure there was some anarchy, but take note of the fact that what the Lord is looking at and what He is pronouncing judgment on is not necessarily overt actions. What is it that is continuously evil all the time? The intentions, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now pause and think about this for a moment. I think we should consider that one of the things that is easily missed here is that from from a human perspective, life may have looked somewhat normal maybe even pretty good, but because God sees not only what is visible to the natural eye, but because God sees down into the heart and the mind, and He knows what it is that is motivating and driving all of these human endeavors, all of these aspirations. He looks at this and He says, this is nothing but pure evil and wickedness. To, to help bring this to light a little bit better, what, what would life look like for us right now? We're, we're sitting here pretty comfortable, just had a good Christmas. Okay, 2020, hard year, but we're about to get that behind us. 2021 is on, the, is on the horizon. What would this world look like if we had the ability, like God, to see every thought and intention that pumped through our hearts? Would, would you be so docile? I don't know that anyone would want to sit next to another person in this room. If you were able to see and discern the thought and the intention of every beating heart. A lot of times we read passages like this and we think, oh man, yeah, it was bad back then. Back then. They weren't as sophisticated as we are today. They they didn't know how to manage themselves the way that we do today. Yeah, no wonder God had to come and wipe everyone and everything out with a the flood. They were just that rotten. They were just them? This is the only time in human history. Where God could look on the human race and say, there is nothing but corruption and wickedness and evil in the heart and the intent of man. Is, this is the only time. Don't kid yourself. Hold your place here and go over to Romans chapter 3. And let's pick up at verse 9, Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. And this is a statement that Paul gives universally applicable to all people at all times. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's pretty bleak. Paul is not writing this passage in Romans 3, looking back to Genesis chapter 6. Paul is writing this, talking about men and women in his own day and time. And as Paul continues to unfold the sinfulness of humanity and the fact that the only hope is found in the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, he makes it abundantly clear that this is not unique to any particular period or era of history. This is the human condition. You and I, left to ourselves, may do, may do an admirable job in keeping up appearances. But there's no way that we change the human heart. And you know and I know, even with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit working on us, That every day I'm reminded of the fact that if my heart is left to its own devices, it is just going to breed corruption. Because apart from the grace of God and the work of His Spirit, I am a selfish, self-centered person. And so are you. So we're reading in Genesis 6 then about how there's this growing sin and deepening depravity on the earth with humanity. Another thing that's interesting about this is that, as we've already alluded to, this is on the tail end of the Genesis 5 genealogy which is tracing through the godly line that comes from Seth. Remember last week we talked about a man like Enoch who walked in close fellowship and communion with God, and God took him? Methuselah blessed with long life, Lamech looking forward to, desiring to see freedom from the toil and the curse that they were suffering under because of sin. So so here's a point of conflict that on the one hand we see in Genesis 5 that God is being good to preserve a godly line through which He will accomplish His purposes and yet while that godly line is continuing and in some ways even thriving, sin continues and thrives as well. That's the way it was in Genesis chapter 6, that's the way it was in 2 Samuel, That's the way it is in Matthew. That's the way it is in Romans. That's the way it is throughout redemptive history. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says this, Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? Nobody's ever uttered anything like that, right? Right? Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Do you know, do you know what that verse is saying? That verse is saying, There is no such thing as better days, the good old days. That's a myth. Our nostalgia for our childhood or our nostalgia or our longing for experiences that have gone by, that in and of itself does not mean that the human condition at that point in time was better than what it is now. If Scripture means anything, this has always been the way humanity is run. So sin is continuing to move through God's creation, depravity is deepening, man is continuing to grasp for divine rights and divine powers, he's trying to make something of himself. God looks at the condition of the world that he has made and particularly his image bearers and he looks down into the very core of their being and he says from the inside out, the thing that makes them tick is pure evil. doesn't mean that it will necessarily manifest itself in pure evil all the time. But there is no redeeming quality that God sees when he looks at the human condition. Everyone is corrupt. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is self-seeking. And it just continues to spiral downward. What then does God do with a situation like this? He judges. There is nothing else that God can do but judge this kind of sin, wickedness, and evil. Look back to Genesis chapter 6 at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. I want to pause right here to just caution us about how we read and understand a statement like this, God saying that I'm sorry that I made man. Remember... We have been made in the image of God. God is not in our image. Okay? So, when we hear in the words of Genesis 6, God say that I am sorry that I made man, do not start from your experience of what it means to feel sorry and then try to project that back onto God to make sense out of what it means for God to be sorry. Right. So, for example, when, if I were to make a statement like this, I'm sorry that I did such and such. I'm sorry that I bought that gift. I thought the wife was going to like it, but now I'm in the doghouse. Right? When I'm sorry that I bought that gift, there are at least two implications that come with that. One implication is that I could not have foreseen that my wife or child or whoever was not going to like the gift, right? I buy the gift precisely because I think they're going to like it. Part of my sorrow is the fact that I am surprised to find they don't like it. I'm sorry I bought that. Another implication that comes when I say, I am sorry that I did, is that I am also intimating or implying that if I had it to do over again, I would not do it, right? So when we as finite, limited human beings say that we are sorry for something… We oftentimes are indicating, I did not know that this would be the end result, and number two, had I known that this was going to be the case, I would never have done what led to this. Now, take that then and apply that to God. Is God caught by surprise at what He finds here in Genesis 6? Such that God is looking at humanity and saying, I never saw that coming. Is God sorry in the sense that He looks at the way that things are now in Genesis 6 and says, well, you know what? If I had to do it all over again, I never would have created. Is that where God is? No. Now, the Scriptures are saying something true and right about God in His response to human sin and wickedness. But I'm just saying this up front to say, be very careful that when we read statements like this, we keep a very, very delicate balance. We want to see and recognize and worship God as someone who is intimately involved in everything that happens in His creation. That He is not disconnected and disinterested that He is not dispassionate when it comes to sin and rebellion. He cares infinitely more than what we do. But also be careful that in acknowledging that God does respond and does position Himself towards sin, that we begin to make Him like us in His responses because He does say that he has sorrow, he does grieve, he does, but he does not do it the way that we do. All that being said, here's the point that we need to come back to. Because God is who he is, because this is his creation, because all things are from him and through him and to him, because all of this has been made as a gift for his son to enjoy, there is no way that God can look at the corruption of His world and not care about it any more than what you and I could look at the corruption of a friend or a family member and not care that they're going into a downward spiral that's going to wreck them. in order for this situation to be rectified, God must judge sin. This is our ultimate dilemma. God will not turn a blind eye to sin. I sin. I create contribute to the sin, wickedness, and depravity in this world, and God sees it and will not turn a blind eye to it. Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. That's happening, that statement is made generations after Genesis 6. Do you you recognize that that, that a statement like that, Psalm 711, is a timeless statement about God? Every morning that we experience, we do experience the goodness of God, His blessing, by His grace. But because God is who He is, every single day... God experiences wrath and indignation and grief over the corruption that's in this world. This is not unique to Genesis 6. Furthermore, when Jesus himself tries to convey to his audience during his ministry... The fact that judgment is still looming for this world. Do you know who He uses? What era He uses as an example of what's to be expected? He uses Noah in this Genesis 6 period of time. Here's Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 42. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah... For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then, on that day, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. By the way, the man in the field who's taken... He's taken in judgment, just like the people who are taken in the flood are taken in judgment. This is not a rapture passage. Taken in judgment. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken in judgment, and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. I hear what Jesus says here about... The future judgment, when it comes, being like the judgment that came in the days of Noah. And I think, well, isn't that interesting? It sounds like, from a human perspective, life looked pretty normal. And people were totally caught off guard by God's judgment. They did not assess their situation to be depraved the way that God assessed it. They did not believe that God was going to judge and deal with sin and wickedness until he did. And Jesus, at the time that he is teaching, says, and that is going to happen all the way up until the last, final, great day of judgment. Men and women are going to be going about their normal business. They're going to be going into the office on Monday morning. They're going to be getting lunches ready for the kids. They're going to be scheduling a movie date. They're going to be doing this, that, or the other, thinking that the world is normal and fine, and they have no idea that they are on the precipice of judgment. Everything looks fine to us, but we don't see like God sees. The only way that this situation will be rectified is if God judges sin. The only way, then, that hope is brought into this situation is by reading verse 8. All of this sin and depravity, all of this increasing wickedness, the corruption of the human heart, God's determination that the only way to rectify this is to judge sin and sinners. Verse 8, but Noah found favor or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You read that carefully, right? Noah found grace. Noah did not earn grace. Noah did not earn his spot on the boat. He was given a spot on the boat. The lesson here for God's people is that the whole world stands under God's right judgment. The only way that we make it through or survive or pass through God's judgment is by sheer grace. Noah does not deserve a pardon. Noah is sinful. Noah's family does not deserve a pardon. Noah's family is sinful. If you doubt this, just continue to read. You'll get there. All of this that we're going to read about in the next couple of chapters The preservation of Noah and his family, by the preserving of Noah and his family, the preserving of a godly line, of a remnant that God will keep to further his purposes, all of that is sheer grace. God does not owe it to Noah. He does not owe it to anyone. Noah then becomes the one and only man at this particular point in time, the one and only man on whom all of human history hinges. God says, Noah, I'm going to save. Noah and his family. If God does not save Noah and his family, the human race is not saved. Noah becomes something like a type of Christ Himself. If Christ does not become the source and the means of grace for God's people, there is no hope for the human race. All of human history is carried on the shoulders of one man. Here it was Noah. In the future, ultimately, it will be Jesus Christ. And the only way that anyone is going to be able to survive the judgment is if they're able to find the grace that God provides with the one man. So in John chapter 1, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father Full of grace and truth. For of His fullness we all have received grace on top of grace. Paul later writing to Titus says in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, not to one man, but to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age." In Genesis 6, grace is something that is bestowed, given to Noah. In the gospel, the grace is a person who is given to us, Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, in light of Genesis 6, 1 through 8, to recalibrate for the start of a new year, recalibrate the way that you see the world and the way that you view life. Get over the notion or disabuse yourself of the idea that back then we had better days and that now we've got nothing but Well, whatever this is, do not say, why are the former days better than these? We talk as if sin and wickedness was not as rampant in those days as they are now, or in this day as they were then. Recalibrate your mind and your perspective on this life and this world to recognize that for all of the goodness that God gives to us, all of the blessings that He makes available, this world, so long as it remains estranged from God and separated from the life that is in Christ, this world hangs under the judgment of God just like it did in Genesis chapter 6. Today could be the day that God says, enough. You think He doesn't have just cause to bring it into it now? Come on. Recalibrate your mind and your perspective on this life and this world to remind yourself over and over and over again that the only thing that means life and blessing and health to us is the grace of God. That we are all undeserving sinners saved by grace who have nothing to show or earn of our own account. We plead the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And knowing that, be eager To give that kind of grace to other people through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you guard our hearts and our minds? Prevent us from becoming desensitized to the sin and corruption that is in this world. Prevent us from becoming apathetic to the sin and the corruption that we battle with even in our own hearts and minds, that yes, we have been gloriously made new, that we have been regenerated, redeemed, forgiven. But we still walk around in broken bodies that suffer from the effects of sin, that are easily tempted and easily led astray. Father, do not allow us as your people to minimize the sinfulness of sin. Help us to realize and to see with clarity, with the eyes of faith, that because of the sin in the world because of your righteousness that judgment is certain to come, but that we have the guarantee of grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Give us a security and a confidence in that and yet a soberness as well as we walk through these days as pilgrims and strangers. In a foreign land. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before I hand it over to Andy, let me just appeal to you. If you are here this morning and you do not know what it means to know the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ to provide forgiveness and pardon from your sin that deserves God's judgment, do not leave before you hear about the grace that is made available to you. I'll be at the door, but I'll stick around for anyone who wants to linger in the sanctuary. If you're looking around and you see someone who looks like, I don't know what a regular Edgewood person looks like, but if they look like a regular, right, talk to them, ask them. They would be happy to talk to you. Andy. Thank you, Jonathan. I uh, felt it would be appropriate as we end uh, our Christmas season to end with a chorus that most of us know, most of us have sung, maybe not know what it means, though. Uh, an older hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High, goes to the chorus of Gloria, Enoch Chelsea's Deo, um, and which simply means glory to God in the highest place. So let's end with that chorus as we uh, end this Christmas season, praising him in the highest. Lord.